Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes all over the world. And there, when, when I think of all over the world, and I think of the global reach that we've been privileged to, to have access to at Diabetics Doing Things, one person in particular stands out to me as just very different than the rest, both because of his positivity and kind and giving heart, and also his story. And that's, that's Muhammad. So Muhammad Sayyam is here. He's today. We're going to talk a lot about his life in Gaza. And as we are recording this on October 18th, 2023, obviously the, the Gaza Strip is, is currently under siege. And every day there are, excuse me, and Dr. Muhammad, I, I, I didn't even give you your proper credentials, but Gaza is currently under under siege, and you know we're seeing you know the the terrible reports coming out every day. So we felt it was especially important to invite him back. Some of you may remember him from his takeover in 2020, and his blog in 2020 as well, and you know just talking a little bit about what it was like to to live in Gaza with diabetes. But Mohammed, welcome to the show, and it's lovely to see you. And thank you so much for giving us your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. I thank you for the introduction. It's absolutely a great pleasure of mine to, to be here, to talk to you, of course, and meet you for the first time. I met Ertia. Thank you, Ertia. And would love to meet you again. Uh, and hopefully I'll meet you, Rob, very soon in person, of course. So, yeah. Thank you for mentioning the doctor thing. I don't really like being called a doctor. <laughs> that was that. Uh, I will, really yes. because I, I don't, I'm not really into uh, the clinical side of medicine, especially when people now listen to the story of Muhammad, the the sorry, me with diabetes and with advocacy. I'm not really into the clinical side of medicine anymore, but yeah, it is, it is what it ends. So yeah, I'm, I'm from Siam, I'm from Gaza, Gaza, Palestine, and uh, I've been living with type 1 diabetes for almost 13 years now. And uh, as Rob mentioned, I've graduated med school. I am a young leader in diabetes, and I uh, do like representing my country in anything related to diabetes. And since my diagnosis 13 years ago, I was lucky enough to find enough support from my family and from my surroundings to lead a, a comfortable life living with diabetes. That's on the family side, but it's also important. Oh, it was important for me to educate people around me to understand my situation and to help me if needed. Um, and that kind of bloomed uh, when I got into med school. Uh, I thought, and I thought of myself as a doctor and I thought that it would be really important for me to tell my friends, my fellow medical students, uh, how they can support me, uh, if I have diabetes or if I have any emergencies and lucky me, the first person I was talking to who seemed was also a, a diabetic and the story behind him telling about that, telling me about his diabetes also inspired me to move more forward, of course, with, with the advocacy, because I was the first person outside of his family to know that he has diabetes and mm. 
for me, him telling me that or him having the enough courage and bravery to tell me this made me think that, oh, it is important for me to be a voice and it is important for me to understand others, to understand how they feel and how can I support them? And that's how I became a young leader in diabetes. And slowly into, uh, with my journey into med school, I kept doing and supporting the student association with a lot of activities related to diabetes. And uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's not just uh, a normal journey, as anybody would say. Uh, diabetes in the Gaza Strip is different. Diabetes in an occupied territory is different. And diabetes with limited resources and limited support is different. The Arabic society in general and the whole Middle East is known for its kind of discrimination against diabetes and not understanding diabetes. And that also gave it an extra burden for me because I had to not only educate myself, but I had to educate the whole community, even doctors themselves about diabetes and about living with diabetes and how important it is for people with diabetes to do different things in their lives in order to stay healthy, to stay fit and to, to manage their condition. Um, I, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. It's not something we've talked about too much on the podcast recently is the cultural differences of acceptance of diabetes within different parts of the world. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to just for our audience kind of talk about what the perception of diabetes in the Arab community is like and, and how you know, much education we all have to do. Because as Eritrea knows, we took a pledge to end diabetes stigma. And we, you know, as part of that, we've got to talk about some of the uncomfortable things throughout the world. Well, well, if you don't know, but I'm, I'm part of the panel, the responsible for the pledge to end diabetes stigma. So yeah, it's, it's really important to talk about it, especially again, in, in an Arabic uh, culture. So generally people think that diabetes, of course, in some countries such as Egypt, I've heard that people think that diabetes could be contagious, which is really bad. But in, 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 in my, in my culture and in, in Gaza, it's, it's not. And, but yet still people think that diabetes is a taboo. That's something that you can't talk about. It's something that you cannot share. And the general view of diabetes, especially with women or with girls is just on a different level that, oh, you can't get married because you have diabetes. Your mm. children are going to have diabetes because of you having diabetes. And this makes it really hard for people with diabetes to talk about their diabetes or, or just to, you know, mention just a hint of positivity about their diabetes because everybody's going to attack them for their diabetes. Nobody's going to support them. And when we can't find, you know, that comfortable zone with with our doctors, with the people who are supposed to be supporting us, then we'll never be able to find it with the community. And also same level of, we can find it with our families. If our families are not supportive, if they, sometimes you don't know how to be supportive. And sometimes cultural barriers play a, a major role in how could your family can support you when you have diabetes. Then I'll definitely not be able to talk to the community about my diabetes because Nobody wants me to talk. Nobody's mm. supporting me. And that is something that, of course, negatively affects people living with diabetes and, and, and the Arabic culture in general, especially in, in, in Gaza. 
people can't talk about their diabetes. People can't do anything about their diabetes. So they just keep it to themselves and uh, have worse management. And that, mm. that, that, that's something that we can see maybe nobody in, in any story uh, when, when somebody talks about diabetes, oh, I went to a restaurant with my friends, but I can't, uh, I can't take my insulin around them. So I just go to the bathroom to take my, to take my insulin, which is like, why would you do that? It, it, it would be, instead of us thinking it this, thinking this way, it would be a great opportunity for you to educate your peers about your diabetes. If you took your insulin shot in front of them and told them, why do you take insulin? How proud are you for taking that insulin in front of them? Because that's what's making you alive and you have to share your story in that way. I think in Islam, there's a thought process of modesty. Because like, I didn't grow up in an Arab country. I just have a baba. And I remember like in restaurants, if I was going to take my insulin at the table, maybe I'd be like, take this to yourself, go to the bathroom. Like, mm. Don't put the rest of I think there's a thought of, especially in Islamic culture or even just Arab culture, if something's happening with you, you're supposed to kind of just keep it to yourself. And that's just kind of how it seems like we're groomed in our society, in our culture to be kind of just keep it to yourself, be quiet. Allah will take care of you. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll dig it in even deeper. I don't think it's totally unique to, to Arab or, or, or Islam. I think being a burden to other people is something like a deep seated fear that many of our, you know, families and parents kind of like put on us as kids and, or we just adopt from their behaviors because that was something, you know, there's a couple things I want to hit on from, from what Muhammad shared just now about advocating for yourself. I was speaking at uh, an event over the weekend to mothers of kids with diabetes and talking about, you know, self-advocacy and, you know, and I remember for the first 10 years, really, of my life with diabetes, my entire viewpoint was to not be a burden on other people and for people to not worry about me and just treat me normally or allow or let me do what I wanted to do. And so I think everybody grows at, at that at a different level. And I think it's it, what's interesting to me about uh, your story in med school, Muhammad, is that that that's also in a classroom was the first time that I publicly in a small setting talked about my diabetes. And then what that led to was someone in the class who had a, a younger, I think he was a nephew with diabetes who had just been told he couldn't run a, a triathlon by his doctor. And then I don't know if I've ever told you this, Eritrea, so this is a big reveal for the pod, but um, I was on the basketball team and, and he knew that. So I sent an email to his, um, to his nephew. And then like a year and a half later, I get this random email of this with no like subject line or anything. And it was just a photo of him with a participation medal running a triathlon. And so like, you never know, like the, the one, like, and I think about that still, I, I had forgotten about it recently, but I remembered the other night. And so when you find somebody and you, when you're open and you advocate for yourself and then there's someone else there, you empower them to open up about themselves as well. And that's, I think, where you start to really build momentum. And that's something that I think is across cultures, across language, that's a connection of diabetes community, not in the way that we think about it online, but like true connection and acceptance. And that is really where I think some of the magic happens of seeing other people in the rooms, ideas of what life is like with diabetes start to open up and start to expand. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And, and, and I think this is one of the core things that makes the diabetes community around the world one of the strongest ones and the well-connected and united ones. 
because it would be really easy for you to understand each other, even if you're from a different culture, from a different, you know, point in the whole world uh, you've never met before, but you still understand, you still support and you still uh, be able to give uh, because of how you feel towards the other person. I totally agree. So we, we talk about this on this podcast quite a bit. Like, let's talk about the 13 years ago, you're, you were diagnosed with diabetes, like leading up to your diagnosis. And also, you know, we have heard a lot of diagnosis stories from around the world, but we haven't heard one about from Gaza and, and being diagnosed with diabetes in, in Gaza. So talk to us about what that was like and, you know, how your, what your diagnosis experience and your sort of onboarding to the world of diabetes was like. Yeah. So I was 11 and, uh, for an 11 year old, it's kind of hard to understand what diabetes is. And I did not understand what diabetes was for back then. I, I started losing weight, of course, going to the bathroom a lot. And in one of my classes, I've asked my teacher to use the restroom twice in like 30 minutes. And he was like, Muhammad, you're supposed to be one of the brilliant students here. Why would you leave the class? Because usually the norm, you, you think, oh, you want to skip the class. But right. I don't want to skip the class. I have to do it. And it was really weird for me because I also like used to bring that big bottle with water, bottle of water with me to, to the school where other students would just get the small ones, the half a liter one. And it was like, how can this be enough for you for the whole day? It was just really weird for me. And when he asked me, when, when my teacher asked me that, I, I, I don't know, the, I don't know, I really need to go. And he said, get your subject. And I, I, I went back to, I went back home to my family that day. And lucky enough, my, my uncle was visiting as a doctor. He's an orthopedist, not nothing related to diabetes, but to still understand what's happening. And he was a little bit worried when, when I told him the story and he told me, you should get your subject first thing in the morning. And next morning, very early, I went to the to a lab, a, a very close lab to us, and I got myself checked. And I was diagnosed with diabetes. And the uh, technician told me they have a phone with you, so you can talk to, so you can talk to your mother. And I was like, "Yeah, but can you just talk to me instead?" And then she was like, "No, no, it's okay. Don't worry, you're fine. Uh, I just need to talk to your mother." And I gave her the phone, and I could. Literally, like I could hear her from the, from the, the other room telling my mom that your son has diabetes and you need to do something about it. So you went to the hospital without, just by yourself? No, I went to a lab next to us. It was just okay. a private lab. But okay. then, <laughs> then, so my mom told me just to go get dressed to school. I was going to school later. So my mom got, told me to go get myself dressed to school. I did not understand what to do, anything. I went to school at like half an hour into the first class, the first, uh, yeah, the first class, I, uh, my dad came to school and he told me, you need, you need to come with me, but like, what's happening? And he's like, well, we need to see some doctors at, at the hospital. Then we need to run some tests and we need to make sure that how, how are you feeling? Cause there are a few problems happening and, and, and he still did not mention diabetes to me. And when we went to the hospital, we saw the doctors and I, I vividly remember how, how things were. The doctors started to talk to me about a healthy lifestyle, 
giving me a glucometer, but still without, you know, teaching me about diabetes or I did not really know what, I, what, again, what's wrong, what's wrong with me. And it, it kept happening this way. And I went back home without, again, understanding what diabetes is. And I think, I think my family, because they, m both of my parents really don't have a, um, a, a medical background or something to understand diabetes deeply through, through their profession, but they still wanted to help. And that's the good thing about how I grew up with diabetes. My family wanted to support, even if they didn't know how to, they would still ask, what exactly do I need? How can we support? They would still ask people living with diabetes for their experiences. They would sell people that they know who are with medical, with medical background and understand from them how is it to live with diabetes and how can we support our child with diabetes. And that's, that is something that made my life much better. And it made me understand in a younger age what diabetes advocacy means and what it means to support others with diabetes. And I think it took me like two years to start getting my, my immense health by myself. They really helped and supported with that a lot. So and I, I, yeah. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about that, like finding that community and like, is that just like, because what we talked about earlier, there is a stigma and there is a cultural choice really to, to be to hide or, or, or bear the burden of diabetes in private and keep it, keep it private. Uh, were, was it just friends of your parents that they knew and they, they said, Hey, oh, this person has diabetes relatives and, and very close friends. Yeah. It was not that public back then. Yeah. It, it, they were so following kind of, they were really being cautious with how are we going to tell people about our, our son's diagnosis and all, all these stuff. So they, it was really close friends back then. But they, they did not make me feel like they're kind of hiding something, especially that when, because the people are visiting your home are mostly your relatives and your close uh, parents, friends or your close friends. So I kind of felt supported because those are the, those are the people who are visiting us. They know that I have diabetes. They talk to me very well. So it was kind of normal for me to grow up thinking that diabetes is normal and they can talk to me a bit about diabetes. But the turning point was again, joining med school because at that point I, I thought that, okay, I'm going to be the voice for those who don't have voice. I'm going to be someone who supports and I, I I'm going to be a doctor. So I have to understand my condition way more than I used to. Hmm. So I could actually support myself because, you know, I felt it from different perspective from that, that positive perspective. And also from the perspective that, oh, you're going to be a doctor. How are you not understanding your condition, your own condition? And what seems sorry earlier kind of influenced me to keep going, to make a wider and way more positive impact to, to the people around me, to my community, to, to the point that it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm currently not even in Gaza. Yeah. So how did you choose medicine? How did you land it? Did your diabetes? Definitely not diabetes. No, <laughs> a lot of people think that I get to medicine because of diabetes, but no. My cousin was an ortho and I loved him. He was kind of my role model in life and he still is. And, 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 and I loved him to the point that, oh, I want to be a future ortho and I want to mix ortho with, with diabetes and it kept this way until 30 years of med school. So med school back home is six years. So halfway into my med school, I still wanted to be an ortho. 
But when COVID kind of hit so hard and I, we got introduced to the online community and we started talking about online support systems and online support sessions and started talking to Serene, you both know Serene and positive on glucose community. And I was like, oh, I love diabetes and focusing and I love what I'm doing. I don't want to be an ortho. And Serene was like, oh, no, it's okay. You could be an ortho, but kind of not mix between your profession and your passion. But later on, I, I, I did not want to mix. Diabetes is my passion. Healthcare generally is my passion. And I want to do that. I don't want to be just sorry, but just a normal doctor in the hospital treating one patient at a time. I want to be something way more than that. I want to change systems and I want to influence people to lead better lives instead of just being the normal doctor in hospital. So that's my story behind not being a clinical, a clinical doctor. But yeah, I do think, you know, the, the, the name of this podcast is Diabetics Doing Things. And we've had a lot of diabetes educators, endocrinologists, and just doctors over the years who were inspired by their diabetes. But I also think it's important to, you know, follow your, whatever path you choose for yourself with your diabetes, because that way someone in the future with diabetes knows that there's a, an ortho with diabetes out there who, you know, is, is doing what they want to do and that that's possible for them. I do want to dig in though a little bit because you were diagnosed, I'm just doing the math here, 13 years ago, 2010. 11. Um, from 2011. So February 11. So between now and then, things have not been consistently safe in Gaza. And there have been, you know, 2014 in particular, and also just various times throughout the years. As you are growing up with diabetes, it's not a predictable schedule and there it's also, you know, the unforeseen, you know, challenges and with the occupation and whether attacks and other things talk to us for our community members who don't really know what it, what it's like to, to grow up in a grow up in a place like that, but then also navigate that with diabetes because, you know, we think in the West, uh, it's annoying to go to the pharmacy uh, where there's a long line, uh, but we don't have any roadblocks. Uh, we don't have any checkpoints. We don't have, you know, military police preventing us from running our errands or, or harassing us. So, you know, for those of us who don't know what it's like to live under occupation, help us understand. Yeah. So, yeah, living, living, generally living in Gaza is is tough and Gaza is really known around the world for being an open air prison. It's under, it's been under siege for the past 16 years. That means that Israel controls everything going in and out of Gaza. That's literally everything, food, water, supplies, people. And if you want to leave Gaza, you'd need a permit to leave Gaza. That's what, that's for example, in my case at the moment, but yeah, living, living, the idea is. The community around there is really well connected and supportive and it would make you feel like you're always welcome. You always have friends and you always have people to play with. You always have people to share your time with. And that's really supportive. That, that's why I kind of miss my childhood because I really enjoyed my childhood. And, and whether it was in Gaza or in any other place in the world, I think that I have I've had um, a good childhood, despite the fact that uh, it was really hard because of different escalations, attacks in Gaza. And even the fact that maybe for example, if you want to go, for example, 
anywhere in the weekend, uh, you would be able to do that because you could just can't leave the city. You're, you're there and you can't leave. And, 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 and to, to put it into context, Gaza is just, or the whole Gaza Strip, not only talking about Gaza, because the Gaza Strip has got five cities and the whole Gaza Strip is 365 square kilometers. And that's really small. That's even, the whole strip is smaller than, I don't know. I'm in London. It's like London is six times bigger than that. So it's really small. So you can't go anywhere you want to go. It's really kind of, again, hard to do that. No, yeah, I, I think for, for our US listeners or even Texas, it's like the size of DFW airport. It's you know, approximately like a, twice the size of Washington, D.C. So like the city, like the city, right. Washington, D.C. One city, guys, times two. That is the size of the Gaza Strip. And yeah, District, of, District of Columbia is a very small area. Yeah, and you've got 2.2 million people living there at the moment. Um, that's yeah, I think third, really third or fourth most densely populated urban area. Yeah, and one of those who has really high unemployment and poverty rates, unemployment is around 52% around the Gaza Strip, and that's definitely higher among the youth because older generation used to be, uh, used to have work and uh, jobs. Uh, and when it comes to poverty, more than two thirds of people in the Gaza Strip live under the poverty line. So it's really hard. And that would give us some context on when we talk about diabetes in specific. Uh, but living with diabetes and in such circumstances and such uh, a problematic, a problematic phase is like, it, it, it's like constant stress. Like you need to cope with everything happening so you can manage your blood glucose levels. And we have limited access to resources and that's the norm. I'm not even talking about times of crisis, such as the one we're experiencing right now. The normal thing is that, well, okay, we've never had uh, access to CGMs. We've never had access to technologies. And until 2021, when we actually made something through advocacy, we all used to have uh, vials available for free in, in, in the governmental clinics or uh, the underwear clinics, because we have two main healthcare providers, that's the Ministry of Health and the, and the United Nations for Relief and Works Agency, because 70% of the people in the Gulf Strip are actually refugees. Those people refused their homes in the occupied territories to the Gulf Strip 75 years ago. So for context, so, what that means is, sorry for our listeners, what that means is that people have slowly been being removed from their, their homes by Israeli settlers, some from the West, some from Israel. And when they're removed, what that means is they are forcibly taken from their home. They have nowhere to go. So they run as refugees to the Gaza Strip within the five cities. Is that right, Mohammed? Yeah, but it's not only the Gaza Strip. We've got refugees in the West Bank, refugees in All Jordan, right. Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, and across the world. Yeah. But yeah, one of the main mm. places they refused to uh, was the Gaza Strip. Yeah, so I was just talking about the healthcare providers. So it was only insulin vials. If you want to buy, if you want, for example, insulin analogs, you want cans because it's easier for you as if I want to get to use pens and to try to go around with pens, you need to buy them out of your own pocket. And they're uh, relatively expensive compared to, again, we're talking about the JTB, we're talking about how, uh, how much people get paid. It was so be kind of at risk. And some people would literally jeopardize getting food for their family or getting incident for the children. We're talking about the norm. 
Right. This is and this is during normal times. And I think during normal times, this is how I lived my life with diabetes. Both of my parents worked. So I was a, they were able to get me insulin analogs when I need. They were able to, to buy me test strips when I need because you can't get test strips any from any healthcare provider and unless there are, for example, some charity organizations that provide children with diabetes test strips. UNRWA can get insulin analogs for children under the age of 18, some tests, sorry, some insulin analogs, but generally it is hard to access these things and it's hard to store them, for example, because we, we don't have constant, that's again, the norm. We don't have constant electricity in Gaza. You got, you got power cuts all every day. You've got power cuts. You only have like eight to 10 hours electricity per day. And that's, that's the best you could, you could get. So you'd need an external generator, some, some sort of energy so you could have, so you can store your insulin in the fridge. And that's again, an, an important mm-hmm. aspect of managing diabetes because if you don't have electricity, you also suffer because you, you don't have enough insulin, your, 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 your insulin will be just misused or you can't use it. Well, and I think it's, it's such an important part of diabetes management to have consistency. So whether that's consistency of medication, you know, a consistency of supplies. And when you're talking about only having two options for healthcare and two places to get your, your treatment, if there's a supply shortage or if a supply line is cut off, or if there's, you know, some, some other interruption, you're talking about having to make a decision on like, like you said, people paying their rent or buying their kids insulin. And I think We've heard stories like that from across, you know, other countries of people making those decisions. I think Ethiopia, we had early on T1 International talked about, you know, the cost of diabetes is almost half of the household income. Uh, You were talking about 52% unemployment. The sprawling effects of that are lack of access to, you know, affording life-saving medication. And... I, I just, again, like we, diabetes is hard. I think we, uh, we've talked about that here on the podcast quite a bit, but one of the things that we in the West, I think need a mirror to is how privileged we are to have in many cases, a pharmacy that we can drive to. And if that pharmacy is out, they can refer us to a pharmacy down the street that we can drive to and get, get what we need that, you know, Eritrea in preparation for this episode mentioned like. We talk a lot about technology on this podcast, and we're we're both very fortunate to get to go see some of the future of technology. But the present for people in Gaza is no automated insulin delivery, no CGM access, just insulin syringes and tests and glucometers, which you know, in the in the U.S. and most of the developed, you know, first world countries in 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 Europe and Asia. Those are, those are considered things of the past. Those are, you know, the, yep. the old, we call it old school diabetes management, very manual. And, you know, you're talking about like insulin analogs being the really only option, you know, so the, the, you know, Lispro, what we would consider like the, the basic generic insulin is the best that you could possibly get in Gaza. Exactly. Exactly. And that, 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 that was kind of, uh, the, the same problem until 2021 when we again were, were, were attacked. Gaza was under attack, of course, by the Israeli occupation. And it is the kind of, let me say, 
the memory that I have compared to any other memory. Because in 2014, I was still a child. Although it, it, the, the war in 2014 lasted 51 days. And it was really rough for us to, to live that life. And I, I remember in 2014, one thing about my diabetes, because my parents are always prepared and they love to be organized. We have enough insulin, like for example, for a month. But not being able to go to a primary healthcare clinic to get my insulin means that, oh, how are we going to treat a child? And we, unfortunately, had um, my mom's aunt who worked in a hospital where it was, were able back then to get me to vials of insulin. And again, I was back on vials back then. They gave me to vials of insulin to, to continue my life. Uh, but in 2021, it's, it, it was just different. I was a mature uh, medical student understanding what's happening around me. And it almost lasted three weeks. And yes, I had enough diabetes, I had enough diabetes supplies for myself. I had enough insulin and I had enough test strips. But the main problem for me was how am I going to manage my condition with all that stress? Now I'm aware that diabetes is not just insulin and, and food. Now it's stress. And how am I going to react to everything happening? Because even right now when I'm out of, of the Gaza Strip, my stress and my anxiety towards how my family are doing is making my readings really kind of miserable. And well, we talk, we talk about it all the time, about yeah. how important sleep and a routine and hydration and stress yeah. and all of these factors. Diabetics really appreciate routine. I, I, I love it. My life is just plain white. It's just plain road. I don't, I don't care. So routine is important. And, and the stress, the worrying, and the, the bombing happening in 2021 was, it was so much. And it was one of the rough times as well because we had really loud bombings and we would not be able to sleep especially at night that because because the they, Israeli Air Force kind of focus on targeting things at night so they make sure that they wake people up they don't want people to sleep they don't want people to have a good night's sleep and uh, but yeah shortly after after the attack we were able to because Throughout the attack, I was able to contact a lot of my friends with diabetes around the world. And again, it's, it's one of the privileges that we have is, is, is that we are very well connected on the United Diabetes community across the globe. And I was talking to them about my access to diabetes, how I talk to people with diabetes in the Gaza Strip, how I try to support them, how to, how to try to support myself and, and how to educate them through such times. And if somebody, for example, can't get insulin, how could they get insulin? Because in 2021. The main private healthcare center in the whole Gaza Strip got bombed. And so it was really, really kind of not safe for people to leave their homes, to leave where they are at the moment to, at that moment, to, to go to get, for example, the medication from a primary healthcare center or from a pharmacy, because pharmacies are all private and you can just go to a pharmacy during wartime. I, I think so, that, let, I want to focus on that for just a second because I think. A city under siege, we don't, I'm sure that many of the people who listen to this podcast, myself included, don't know what that's like because we've never experienced it. And, you know, I, I don't know that we are often grateful enough for just being lucky to be born in the United States, which is luck on our part because we have, we've never felt like what it's like to have our healthcare centers bombed so that we don't, you know, so that the city surrenders. And 
the brutal tactics to, you know, torture a population include things like blowing up hospitals and blowing up and bombing at night to keep people awake and the psychological trauma of of that type of experience we just don't have any idea what that's like and i think it's important for me to at least expose our audience to what people with diabetes are going through in every situation wherever there is a humanitarian crisis uh, there are people with diabetes we uh, talked about this with our our north texas food bank work Wherever there are large numbers of people being reported, we talked about this during the pandemic as well, there are large percentages of people with diabetes because, you know, the, the statistics show that one in every three or four people has diabetes. And so we can't ignore the fact that in that 2.2 million people, there are quite a few people, I think close to 70,000 people living with uh, diabetes of some kind. And, and yeah, way more, right? So and that's just what's reported. And so again, you know, I think our our day-to-day, -day, like you said, if we could all just have a really predictable schedule, we would choose that because it makes our diabetes easier to manage. And we talk about the stress and anxiety that people with diabetes in the West have when they're traveling. And imagine that same stress, but you're packing all of your belongings in a grocery bag with no notice and putting everything that you own on your back and walking out of your your family home that is you know then decimated and so i think context is so important and you know being able to center people at the at the at these in these moments of crisis is so important for us to understand that it could it could be one of us it could it could so easily just if not for luck it could be me or or Eritrea or or anyone else who listens to this podcast could be in your position and having to make decisions on going into unsafe areas or going all the way across the city or, or losing their their job to go get the medicine that they need and or during a time like right now under siege having to ration we talk about insulin rationing in the United States for cost but Rationing because of supply is also, you know, during this time, the decisions that people with diabetes are having to make. Yeah. Well, um, oh, I'm sort of saying, oh, oh, by praying that hopefully none of us or any of you, none of any of our listeners experience such, such hardship ever in their life and hopefully you pray for, for world peace. But yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of when, when you were talking again, it's a lot of emotions. It's a lot of feelings that I just had regarding it so because I've, I've been through that i've been through rationing incident because I'm, I'm, I'm under attack and i've been through very hard times trying to keep myself a little bit calm to understand how it is to to be a diabetic keep myself calm for not it's like because i don't want to be stressed because i don't want to i don't want my blood glucose levels to get higher so i, I need so i needed to take more insulin and and this was kind of the main reason behind me not wanting to be stressed. It's not that, oh, I'm supposed to not be stressed and I'm going through this, but no, I don't want to be stressed because I don't want to use more insulin. Therefore, I lack insulin by the end of the week, for example, I'd need more insulin. It was, it was an important uh, kind of cost that I had to pay out of my own health just because I'm living in the Gaza Strip. And, and a different kind of rationing, right? It's like a... 
an emotional rationing. It's like a don't allow. God, it, I, this is gonna sound so lame, but it's in like in that movie Frozen when Elsa's like, "Don't feel like literally, like literally, you're just like, don't mm. feel anything, don't feel anything, yeah. don't feel anything, suppress yeah. the feeling." And then, and then, and I believe like I kind of grew up being that kind of. I'm not that person who's really an emotional guy. I try as much as I can to. Okay, I'm, I'm not a robot, of course. But I'm kind of a realistic type of person, and um, and I think it grew up with me through such experiences because I have to be that type of person in order to be able to just deal with how my life is going. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's definitely a total different experience. Not being able to access the supplies that you need, not being able to see your doctors, not being able to talk to your doctors. And and when I was in med school, I was self-educated. I was like, like kind of the person who has responsibilities to towards others. And a lot of people with diabetes back then and still till this day contact me constantly asking for supplies, asking for help, sometimes asking for supplies and asking for advice to because okay, if, if my doctor is not replying, then I shall see. Muhammad is Muhammad is a doctor who understands diabetes. Mm. So yeah, it, it was it was it was just nonsense. And even if if I want to just put some sad song, well, according to to the, to the World Diabetes Foundation, around fifty percent of Palestinians are living with diabetes. If you want to put that into numbers in the Gaza population, that would be more than three hundred thousand people living with diabetes in the Gaza Strip. And of course, we don't have a registry. We don't have a, data, a database for diabetes in, in, in Palestine. But if you want to put that into context, you just imagine how many people with diabetes are suffering through this time and through many times in their history, just because they're under incubation, just because they're under siege, they can't just move freely. You've mentioned that a lot of people are stressed because of the diabetes when they travel. But imagine if people are not even allowed to travel freely, are not allowed to move freely in, even in their own land. Because they're under occupation, they're under siege. And one blessing that Gaza has, because yeah, you just said that I'm positive and I like mentioning positive things. One blessing that Gaza has is that Gaza is, is a Mediterranean city. We're just, we have a beautiful beach, we have a beautiful sea. And a lot of people just go to the sea to express their feelings, to sometimes shout, to, to just look at the waves and the movement of the waves, just to, the, the, the seashore and how things are, how nature would just calm them a little bit. And I think if 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 it was if, if it was not for just for the, that for the sea itself, a lot of people would have been Gaza would have just gone mental because of the amount of stress we suffer and we go through every single day. Because it's hard living in Gaza is hard, and we had to adapt. We had to cope with everything as people with diabetes and also as people we're not, we're not, we're not with diabetes, just normal people, we're normal, yeah, but you know, undiabetes un, un, un people, but Muhammad, <laughs> I, like, we, I like that, undiabetes people, I love that. We're, we're talking a lot about the experience of living in the Gaza Strip, growing in the Gaza Strip, living with diabetes there and how you navigated that. I kind of want to shift our focus here and talk a little bit more about what's happening in Palestine right now and yep. what we can do to help our friends living in Gaza. For some numbers and statistics for everyone listening, at time of recording, today's Wednesday, October 18th, there has been 10 days that has started the escalation of violence between Israel and, and Gaza City. 
at this time, this number is killing me to say it, 4,200 people have died. 60% of those people have been children. That is a ridiculously staggering number. The amount of people that are injured, they can't even get like an accurate toll of those numbers. When I tell you that they're putting bodies in ice cream trucks because there are no morgues to hold the dead, it is horrific what is happening. And so I think we need to touch a bit on what we can do now for Palestinian people as an advocacy society, as a diabetic online community of people who are constantly advocating for the equal and fair treatment of people living with diabetes. So Mohammed, can we can you yeah. I'm, I'm going to just go back to the end of 2021 to put a few things into context, especially that advocacy actually helped us get incident analogs into the Gaza Strip. International diabetes community has supported in getting incident analogs into the Gaza Strip and putting incident analogs as part of the essential drug list in Palestine. And our work has made people's lives better. And of course, it can again make their lives better and at least make make it more livable for them in such terms of crisis. Currently, people with diabetes in Gaza are experiencing way worse than what I've just mentioned about my life with diabetes in Gaza, because it's been more brutal alone and the attacks are just nonstop at the moment. I'm not going to talk about stress. I'm not going to talk about worrying. I'm not going to talk about fear, um, but I'm going to talk about not them actually not having enough insulin and the providers, the Ministry of Health and Odawa not having enough supplies to provide. And especially with, with the humanitarian aid just waiting at the Egyptian side of the crossing, and that's the crossing between Gaza and, and Egypt. And Israel not allowing it to enter for, I don't know what inhumane reason would that be, but not allowing humanitarian aid for people in actual need of it. Hospitals are, at the moment, we've got no electricity or no food, no access to food, no access to water. And people are actually kind of being, you know, in an unlivable condition, trying to live, trying to survive, but you are not allowing them to do so by, even by attacking hospitals is just, is just mental. I, um, I also saw a, a report from a doctor who said that they, they're running out of gloves. They have to wash their gloves in water. They, uh, with they're soap. running out of everything. And they've just declared that, that, that the, the problem with hospitals at the moment, because even if there's no electricity, sometimes hospitals have backup generators and now their generators are stopping. And that would literally affect every patient in that hospital. Imagine a patient on a ventilator in an ICU or something. He's literally going to die if, if he got electricity from him. And, and that's the same when you're talking about diabetes with insulin soaring and you talk about cancer patients or any type of patient, anything that you could imagine what's happening is literally an email. And the first thing that we need to do is keep supporting online, keep talking about it because we need that humanitarian aid to enter the Gaza Strip right now. And countries need to push forward, push Israel forward for accepting and for allowing that humanitarian aid to enter the Gaza Strip so people can actually benefit, so things can actually work. And I know this could sound political, but the problem is without political action, without us calling our leaders, we will not be able to actually support the people in need because Israel is threatening to bomb the humanitarian aid if entered Gaza without their 
without the, of course, allowance. So we need to talk to our leaders. We need to raise our voices to, to, to advocate. This is what advocacy is all about. Using our voice, using what we have in, 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 in our powers to support the people in need to, support, to understand their feelings and try as much as we can to kind of give an issue, give some, you know, talk about it to, to, to anybody we could talk about it with. So, and so. I, I, I 100% agree. I also want to, to some, to people out there, because I know Eritrea has been leading the charge on the Diabetes Humanitarian Aid Coalition, and they have updated the link to a new action platform, which allows you to directly email your representatives and take action that way. And I, I would encourage people who are out there thinking, well, my voice doesn't matter. What is the point of doing that? I think we've, you shared the first story you shared when you advocated for yourself in about your diabetes in med school, you found someone to connect with and were able to, you know, a difference was able to be made in, in your life. And I think that that is also important for our our global advocates and our people in our community who say, hey, diabetes humanitarian aid is needed. Insulin is is among one of the, it is even bigger than just the base needs of power and access to healthcare and, and access to medical care is needed immediately. And so I think if you're frustrated by, you know, not being able to do something that makes a difference, you know, every, every voice can be potentially the one that, you know, allows the, the right people and leadership to, to advocate for, for people. So I, I think the link is in the, is going to be in the show notes. It's, it's going to be in our diabetics doing things link tree today as well. So just go click that link and it's very simple, very easy. It won't take very much time at all. And it could make a huge difference. I will like add that at time of recording, just to give you guys the numbers, 1,574 letters have been sent from the Diabetes Humanitarian Aid Coalition. And I am proud of every single letter that we've sent. 208 people have signed the Action Network petition, while 350 have signed our change.org petition as well. Those numbers are going to make a difference, guys. It's how lawmakers are going to pay attention to what's happening. The United Nations is calling for a humanitarian quarter. Many countries are calling for a humanitarian quarter. There are countries that have pushed Israel out of their space now because of what's happening, because what is happening is a war crime. There is no cutting around that. Cutting off access to water, electricity, medical aid. Mohammed touched a little bit about how difficult it is in a hospital to get electricity. If you're a normal person in Gaza who has had any kind of cut on your body, there is no clean bathrooms left because there is no water. Those cuts will get infected. Disease is spreading. This is a genocide that we are watching happen in real time. And it is important that as advocates for people with diabetes, we stand up. We do not allow this covert message of anti-Semitism to disempower us and to literally paralyze us into not speaking up. Anti-Zionism and anti-colonialism is not anti-Semitism, point blank, period. The people of Palestine are Semitic, as Mohammed has reminded me over and over and over again. And I just feel like someone needed to say it. And so I'm going to say it with my whole chest. And that's what I have to say. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying it. And of course, yes, every, every voice matters. Every 
thing that we can do matters and it can definitely support people in the future or hopefully very, very soon. Or hopefully we get this humanitarian aid entering the closet very soon. And um, it's, it's also important to remind that access to healthcare, access to humanitarian aid, access to food, electricity and water, everything that you need to live is under the Geneva Convention, is international law, is human right. And right now what's happening is, yes, a violation to human rights. And it's important for us at least to do the least that we could do to support people who are being erased from, from the, from the face of the earth. Well said, Mohammed, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show today and for using your voice to help center this, this cry humanitarian crisis within the diabetes community. Uh, I think your voice uh, over the years has helped me to grow and understand and learn more about our, what our human brothers and sisters in Palestine are going through. And at this point, you know, 1.1 million of them being displaced and, you know, not just walking out into the streets that they normally see, but decimated infrastructure no and and buildings erased i think erasure is is the is the term and you know my, again my neighborhood is is wiped out my own street yeah. wiped out at the moment and it's just again mental and they don't refuse to a safer place even if they go to the south where they were forced to to, to leave there they're still get bombed they're still get killed there and so like you, like you mentioned, the, the borders are not open. There's, there's no place for, for the refugees to go. And, you know, at this point, no end in sight. So the, you know, again, this is a humanitarian effort and, and a humanitarian problem. We could all be in the situation, but for the grace of God. And so I think we need to remember our people who, who are there in, in Gaza and and continue to lend our voices to create awareness about what's happening there. Because I think I, I can confidently say that in, in the U.S., especially here in Dallas-Fort Worth and in Texas, people have no idea what's really happening uh, to people on the ground. And so thank you for, for sharing your story. And thank you for being, uh, you know, positive on glucose. You know, I think to shout out to Serene, I think your positivity shines through even in the darkest moments. And uh, I just appreciate that display of strength. And for someone only 24 years old, you you're, uh, project much stronger and, and uh, you know, you're a great leader. So thank you so much for, for your time today. So, uh, well, first, thank you so much for your words. And uh, yeah, thank you for, for having me. Uh, and yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's not just, it's not just Gaza. Uh, as, as, internet, as part of the international community, it's always a commitment for us to help each other, to support each other all the time, everywhere. Whenever somebody's in need, we have to help. And Gaza are currently in an actual and crucial need of our support. And they rely on us. And we have to use our voices. We have to use whatever we have to, to support them. Well said. Thank you so much, Rob.